We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now I'd like to use a text of Scripture here in Matthew 16 and verse 13. I'm sorry, I said 16 a moment ago. And then there's another verse in Matthew 27, verse 24, I'd like for you to underscore as well. Matthew 27 and verse number 24. I read in verse uh, 13 of, of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now that's a question. Now in, in Matthew 27, uh, this is the chapter, of course, that relates to the uh, crucifixion of our Lord. We find the record in this chapter of Jesus before the Sanhedrin court. And uh, the, day, the night before in the house of Caiaphas. We also find the Lord uh, on the day of his crucifixion uh, questioned and judged by Pilate, uh, who was the Roman governor. This is in Matthew 27. Now, I have a sermon that I sometimes preach about Pilate uh, on the immortal words of Pilate. Now, I don't think Pilate was a saved man. I think Pilate was a Roman pagan. But I have no reason to believe that Pilate was not a decent man. I have no reason to believe that what he was not a fairly good Roman governor of Israel. Now, I'm not saying that he was all he could be. I don't know anything about uh, his life well enough to, uh, to make a judgment on, on that line. But I have no reason to believe but that Pilate uh, earnestly sought to discharge his duty as an appointed Roman governor. He was appointed by Caesar uh, to be the governor of Rome, of, uh, governor rather of Israel. And it's uh, rather logical to me that he'd want to be the best governor that he could be. Quite an honor to have been appointed governor of Israel by the Caesars of Rome. And I, I think Pilate was, uh, had enough integrity about him to seek or at least to make an attempt to be as good a governor as he could. And the reason I say that, I think when, when Jesus was before Pilate, that Pilate actually tried to be an impartial judge of our Lord. Pilate didn't ask for the job. Uh, Pilate didn't know when he uh, left Rome to go over to Jerusalem uh, that he was going to have Jesus on his hands. He might not have ever heard about the Lord when he lived in Rome. He was not a Jew, he was a Roman. And he might have never heard about the Lord as long as he was in Rome. But I don't think he'd been in Jerusalem very long until he came in contact with the Nazarene and he heard about Jesus. And uh, things developed rapidly. And a lot of things were laid in the lap of a pilot that Pilate didn't plan for. Now, he didn't know about. He, he was a victim, so to speak, of circumstances. Would you agree? I think he was a victim of circumstances to a great degree. And I think Pilate did as well as he could do under the circumstances. He, he had a dilemma. He had, he had the Jews that he was governor over crying for the blood of Jesus. Why, they said this man's a revolutionary. This man is seeking to set up a puppet government. And the Jews were crying that he be crucified. You remember Pilate said, I'll release Barabbas. That'll satisfy them. And I'll let, uh, let Jesus go and I'll crucify Barabbas. But he got the surprise of his life. Why, Pilate thought that any decent audience of people would say release Jesus. 
and crucify Barabbas. But Pilate gets a total surprise when that crowd says, uh, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. I don't think Pilate was prepared for that. Do you? I think not. I think he was completely taken by surprise at the viciousness of that mob of people that was crying for the blood of our Lord. Now I said those things to say that to me it's reasonable to conclude that when Pilate sat as judge of Jesus, he at least made an effort to be impartial and to be honest and just. I have no reason to doubt that, would you? I don't think you'd find any Bible reason uh, to doubt that. I think when Pilate uh, called for that water and washed his hands, uh, he was at least honest. Now, we think he was foolish. I think he was foolish. You don't get rid of Jesus by washing your hands. Not at all. But I think he was naive. I'll admit, I'll concede that Pilate was naive and unlearned. You don't dispose of Jesus that simply. But I do believe that Pilate was honest when he said, I'll wash my hands of the whole messy situation. I don't want to be involved in it. I'll just dismiss myself, disqualify myself as judge, and step out of the picture. But you don't do that that easy, do you? Pilate found out later that you don't dismiss the Lord like that. And you don't either in 1973. But I think Pilate was as, as just as a judge of our Lord as a Roman could be. I think so. I have no reason to believe otherwise. Now I said that to emphasize what Pilate says in verse number 24. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, the mob was absolutely uncontrollable. He could not persuade them. He saw that the mob was bent on the blood of Jesus. And Pilate became convinced that nothing he could do would change their minds. And when he saw that he could prevail nothing, we're told in verse 24, but rather a tumult, that's a, that's a, a revolution, that's a bloodshed, that's, a, that's bad. That's a street scene of violence, a tumult is a street scene of violence. He saw that a tumult was about to be made. He then took water and washed his hands before the multitude. And watch what he said. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Now do you know what Pilate said? I am innocent. Now we know he wasn't. And uh, I'm convinced he was not. I believe that Pilate, somebody said, is still washing his hands in hell, if that be possible. I, I think Pilate went to hell. Uh, sad to say, I don't think he was a believer. I don't think he ever became converted. Died and went to hell, no doubt. But he said, I, I, I want to uh, disqualify myself as a judge of this man. I want to get out of the picture completely. I don't think he ought to die. I don't think he's guilty. I think he's an innocent man. <clears throat> I believe that he's a just man, and I want to be innocent of any responsibility of whatever may happen to the Lord. That's what he said. And I have no reason to doubt that, not in the least. Matthew recorded it in this verse. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Now, Pilate thought that our Lord was a just man and a good man. He was not, he, Pilate was convinced, I'm convinced of it, you are too. Pilate was convinced that Jesus had done nothing worthy of death. And I'm convinced of that now. I don't think the Lord died justly. I believe the Lord died 
But I submit to you, he died unjustly. He was guilty of no crime. Uh, he, he had done no wicked deed. But actually, I know theologically, uh, he, he did not die because he was a criminal or not a criminal. Theologically, he died because he was a lamb of God who came to die upon the cross to pay my sin debt. But I'm talking about uh, from the civil standpoint, the criminal standpoint. Jesus had done nothing from the criminal angle that would deserve the penalty of death being meted out to him. Now here's a Roman governor, not a, a, a simple my, uh, my, a man, but an important citizen of Rome who had the opportunity of hearing all the arguments pro and con, uh, who was uh, entitled and qualified to sit in the seat of judgment upon our Lord. And after hearing the arguments pro and con, for and against, Pilate came up with his own conclusion that the man ought not to die. That's very clear in the scriptures. The man ought not to die. Pilate came up with his own conviction that Jesus of Nazareth was a just man. Now that's very important to me. I believe he was a just man also. I believe that he was a good man. I believe that he was a moral man. I believe Jesus was of great character, more than any other individual that has ever lived upon this earth. I don't think there was one dishonest thread in his constitution. I could not believe that there was one immoral deed in all the 33 years of the span of his life. I believe that he was a just man, an honest man, an upright man, a good man, the God man, if you please. I accept that. I have no trouble, no difficulty believing that at all. And evidently, Pilate believed the same thing. He was a good man. He was a just man. Now, I wasn't on hand at the trial of our Lord. The only thing I know about the trial of our Lord before the Sanhedrin court and before the high priest Caiaphas and before Pilate, the Roman governor, the only thing I know about that is what I read out of the Bible. I was not there. Now that's very obvious. But Pilate was there. Pilate did not give us a second-hand uh, conclusion when he said this is a just man. He was not reporting what had been reported to him. But Pilate had Jesus before him and had the opportunity of observing him and hearing him and answering the arguments pro and con about the Lord. And if there ever was a man qualified to make an opinion, Pilate was that man. Now, had he been a Jew, had he been a believer, had he been like Peter, James, and John, somebody said, well, uh, he, he's a believer, therefore he disqualifies himself. But he was neither a Jew nor a believer. He was a pagan. He was a Roman. He was a Roman governor. So it seems to me that you'd be a little bit naive if you said Pilate was not qualified. If there ever was a man qualified uh, to give a, a, an honest opinion about what Jesus was and who he was, then it seems to me Pilate was that man. Uh, if, you, if I had given an opinion, you'd say, well, your faith uh, seasons your judgment and your, your faith uh, influences your opinion, and that'd be absolutely right. Because I believe he to be the Son of God, my Lord, and my Savior. And I, I couldn't help but be regulated by my faith if I sat in judgment. But Pilate didn't have faith. Pilate was not a Jew. He had nothing to, to win, nothing to lose. 
He had no testimony to set forth. He had no convictions of his own about Jesus. And as far as we know, he might have never seen him until he was brought in before him on the day of his crucifixion. We don't know. But I'm say, I said that to say, and I think I'm logical in this, that Pilate was well qualified to make an opinion about Jesus and who he was. And I'm willing to take his testimony, aren't you? He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man. And that's the thing that I want to emphasize. This just man, this good man, I'm innocent of his blood. And he well knew what he was talking about. He was well qualified to come up with that verdict and with that opinion. Now, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? I picked up Newsweek magazine this week, and this is an article that I wanted to warn my people about today. And this is the basis of my message. And this is the reason that I've given the introduction, logical in introduction that I've given so far in the message. But this week, Newsweek. I don't subscribe to Newsweek, but I see Newsweek on the airplanes. I see Newsweek in libraries. I see Newsweeks in doctor's offices. And I, I have the occasion all along to check them and to read them and to browse them, to say the least. And always when I pick up time of Newsweek, I turn, if to nothing else, I turn to the religious section. And believe me, some of the, uh, the, the most weird and far out religious articles you've ever read in your life, you can read in Newsweek in time. I don't think I have ever read one sound fundamental article in Newsweek. I can't recall if I ever read one. Newsweek in life and time never has been friendly to your position and mine. And they never will be. They're on the left. They're with the liberals and with the modernists. And they play down any fundamentalist. They play down any church like Tabernacle. They play down any movement that will stand for the Bible. They're noted for that, as far as I'm concerned. Newsweek and Time is noted for that. And so when I turn to the religious uh, uh, page, sometimes I get angry. Very seldom do I get blessed because there's not anything that will bless, uh, bless me. But I look at it, I want to see what, what the liberal minds are thinking. I want to see what the modernists are about to bring forth. I want to see what the 1973 Epicureans are about to come up with. I want to see what the worldly wise people are about to sound off about. And you can usually find out if you'll read Newsweek. You can just about find out what these eggheads are thinking about. And what these liberals are thinking about. And these modernists are thinking about. And Newsweek is very anxious to put that in the paper. Oh yes. They'll, they'll put that in their, in their seat. But not a fundamental position. Never. But this week in Newsweek. Uh, there was an article about a professor at Columbia University, Morton Smith, Professor Morton Smith, who has written a book. And the title of the book, according to the article in this week's Newsweek, is The Secret Gospel. The Secret Gospel. That's something brand new under the sun, isn't it? Uh, I have a Bible with four Gospels in it, and it's everything but secret. We shout it from the housetop. But here's a man, a great wise man. I say that in parentheses and brackets uh, and quotation marks. Uh, he's, a, he's a professor at Columbia University, and I take it for granted. And by the way, he's a professor in ancient history. 
And uh, that's a good subject. That's an interesting subject. I like history, whether it's ancient history, a medieval history, a modern history. I love history. And I've studied, I minded history in University of Massachusetts. And I know a little bit about history. But he's a professor in ancient history at Columbia University. And uh, he claims to have gotten hold of uh, a fragment of a letter that was written by Clement of Alexander. Now that may be a strange name to some of you, but Clement of Alexander was supposed to have been a Christian church father who lived 150 AD. That's about 125 years after our Lord lived and died. Clement of Alexander. He wrote extensively. Much of his works abide until this day. And he, he claims to have found a letter uh, in a Greek monastery in Israel that had survived all the long centuries from Clement's day down to 1973. Well, I, I don't know. I put a big question mark about that to begin with. But uh, he claims to have found a letter that uh, Clement wrote. And in that letter, Clement of Alexander insinuates strongly that the Lord Jesus was a mystic and a magician and practiced uh, 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 hypnotizing people and strongly insinuated that he initiated all of his disciples into what he called the kingdom of God with a secret, private, uh, magical initiation. Very slanderous, very sordid, absurd, base, dirty insinuations that he makes against our Lord. So this man gets hold of what he says to be a letter written by Clement of Alexander. I put a big question mark about that. But anyway, he, he writes a whole book now, and it's been published, and it's on the market, so Newsweek says, I'm not interested in buying one. You don't need the secret gospel. You need the four gospels. And anyway, he write, writes the book on the secret gospel, and in that book, this professor says that our Lord was a magician, and that he hypnotized people, and that he initiated all of his immediate disciples into this little sect of people, little cult of people, by some kind of a mystical private initiation ceremony. Now, brother, that makes my blood run red. I get angry, righteously indignant. I'm as mad as I can be right now with the devil. I'm as upset as I can be. That's a slanderous lie against the Lord of my soul. And I resent Newsweek advertising such an absurd, ridiculous insinuation as that is in their paper, in their pages. I thought when I read that article, here's a man that lives in 1973. He never saw the Lord. He never attended the trial when our Lord was tried before his vicious crucifixion. And yet he comes up with the conclusion that the Lord was a fraud and a fake and learn magic early in his life and learn how to hypnotize people early in his life. And got by all the years with that kind of hypnotic power. And all of it was a fraud and a fake. And I thought about Pilate when I read that article. Here was a man that was on hand. Here was a man that saw the Lord firsthand. Here was a man that heard all the questions pro and con. Here was a man that watched Jesus, his expressions, 
and his attitudes and weighed his words when he answered. And then came up with the conclusion that this is a good man, a just man. But this wise fellow at Columbia University, he discounts all that. Away with Pilate. I know more than Pilate. I'm more wise than Pilate. Away with Pilate. What does he know? I'm the intellectual. I live in 1973. And I have the insight. I write the truth. He writes a dirty lie. You know, I've often wondered why people have to butcher up the Savior. If he wanted to slander somebody, wonder why he didn't slander Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar lived when the Lord lived. Why don't he butcher up Julius Caesar? If he's got to butcher somebody, why don't he turn the pages back and butcher up old Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon? Wonder why people have to, have to butcher the Lord up. If he wants to butcher somebody, why doesn't he butcher Napoleon Bonaparte? Or why don't he come down to our day and butcher up Adolf Hitler? Why would a man reach back and take out a man that went about doing good, whom Pilate said is a just man? Why would a man slander a good man, a just man? When there's a lot of people in the world that he can vent his anger against, if he must vent his anger against anybody, why pick out Jesus? Well, I know the answer, and you know the answer too. It's the dirty old devil behind it. If I had no reason to believe in a personal devil other than what I'm talking about now, it'd be all the evidence that I need to convince me that the devil's behind the pro whole program. The devil's not out to destroy uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Napoleon or Adolf Hitler. The devil is not out to ruin the character of any of those ancient monarchs, but the devil is out to seek to try to destroy the character of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I want the devil to know that I'm wise to his devices and I'm not going to let him do it and be silent while he attempts it. I'm going to cry aloud and spare aloud as long as there's breath in my mortal body. Newsweek. They'll show you how sometimes the news media can be slanted against old time religion. I picked up the Charlotte Observer a few weeks ago. Show you how silly some people can be. The Charlotte Observer is supposed to be one of the outstanding newspapers of the two Carolinas. And on the front page of section number two, in the Charlotte Observer, they printed a legend about Jesus. Some of you might have seen that. I saw that, had it in my hands, read it in my own eyes. And they printed a legend about Jesus. And they said in the shot of the observer that Jesus was probably a dope addict. That he had access to the stupefying drugs of that ancient day. And probably was on, on dope and drugs upon the cross to the degree that they thought he was dead. And they took him down thinking him to be dead and buried him. But he revived and walked out and saw that he was in trouble. And so when he saw that he was in trouble and wasn't going to be able to go ahead with his revolutionary program, he packed up and left the Middle East and went to the Far East and married a Chinese woman, had 12 children and was buried in China. How do you like that? Charlotte Observer, Newsweek Magazine, these great papers 
Why in the world would the Charlotte Observer print a legend about Jesus so ridiculous and so absurd? Why don't they print a legend, a legend about David Crockett? Why don't they print a legend about Daniel Boone? Why? Why attack Jesus? You know why. Their wicked heart of unfaith and unbelief and their father the devil behind them probing them on, pushing them on, seeking to undermine and to destroy the faith of you and I that believe that Jesus Christ is all the Bible says he is. Now one thing, get this. In Newsweek this week, in that article, this man set out to make Jesus a magician and tell me that he performed his miracles by the process of his skill to hypnotize set out to destroy all that I believe Jesus is and I want you to know that I believe that he's very God complete God God incarnate but he set out to destroy all that but not one time did he make any attempt to give me another foundation he wants to destroy my foundation he wants to destroy my faith he wants me to forget about old-time religion he wants me to abandon the Bible. He wants me to have the idea like he has that Jesus was immoral sexually. He wants to destroy everything that I have precious. But I notice he didn't give me one thing in place. Not a thing. He had no panacea. He offered no program for redemption. He offered no hope beyond the grave. He just pulled the rug out from under my feet and didn't give me any remedy. Now that's being heartless, that's being dishonest, that's being cruel, that's being ruthless. If he's found a better way, then he's obligated to report that way to me. And until he reports a better way to me of salvation and hope, then you let me continue with my salvation and my hope as it now is, you see. But this crowd that seek to destroy faith and grace, they have no other panacea to offer. To you and I. Now I want to remind you of a few things that I believe Jesus is to me and to you. I remind you first of all in spite of Newsweek, in spite of the Charlotte Observer, in spite of every liberal theologian and modernistic college professor in all the world, in spite of all their books they may write with their insinuations against the Savior, Jesus is the answer to a guilty soul. Oh, brother, once I was guilty, once I was blind, once I was lost, once I groped for the wall like a blind man, once I had no hope of life after death, once I was without God and without hope. And as in our Sunday school lesson today, there was a light in the shadow of death. Jesus is the answer to a guilty soul and the only answer to a guilty soul and since I've learned him I can testify to you now there is therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus our Lord you got something better than that trot it out I want to see it but until you bring me something better than that then you keep your dirty mouth shut about my Lord he's the answer to a guilty soul he can put me at peace with God and peace with my brother. 
He can give me a light to lighten the dark pathway. He can give me a hope as I stand by the empty grave. He can give me a, a light in the shadow of death. He's the answer to a guilty soul. That's Jesus. Then again, I remind you, Jesus is the song in every night of this pilgrimage. The nights sometimes grow long and dark and dismal. And this life is not always a bed of roses. This life sometimes can be a season of affliction, can be a valley of strife and discord and heartache and heartbreak. This life sometimes has many disappointments along the way. Thousands of shut-in people along the way. They can't come out to church like you now enjoy. Can't hold down a job like you can hold down a job. They're sick and afflicted. But I want to testify to you that Jesus is the song of every night. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Thou knowest my hand with all, and my cup runneth over. He's a song in every night. And I'm not ready to abandon my song. I have too many nights I now travel in, and too many nights I will travel in, to abandon the light and to abandon the one that can give me a song as I pilgrimage for the Lord. That's Jesus. Yeah, Mr. Smith up at Columbia University calls him a magician. He says he's got you hypnotized. No, my friend. No, we're sound and in our right mind and seated at the feet of the Lord right now. I'm not beside myself. I'm just possessed with grace and faith. Jesus is the song in every night. Then again, Jesus is the assurance of life hereafter. You know, life would be an awful thing if I had to look at a grave. I've never seen one that I thought was pretty. I've never seen a casket that I desired. I have no desire to go to the funeral home and buy myself a casket and carry it home and sit it in the corner and polish it up every day or two. You say, oh boy, you're going to stay in that thing a long time. I have not yet bought a vault and put it in my basement and kept it clean. I have no desire to buy a vault. I've never seen a grave that I thought was desirable, nor a casket that I thought was pretty, nor desirable. I don't like to think about death. Oh, brother, life's been a blessed experience, and I love life. He that would love life and see good days, and I love life. I don't want to die. Years ago, Jesus came by and said, son, if you'll believe in me, you'll never die. And I believed in the Son of God, and since that day, I've had eternal and everlasting life. And someday I'm coming to the terminal, and there's going to be a changing of trains and changing of flights. And I'll change my cargo and change my, uh, my personality and my, my corruption a bit. But it's only going to be a terminal. I'm going to lay aside this old robe of flesh at that terminal and get clothed in a glorious incorruptible body. Then I'll take the next flight to glory. <laughs> I'll not die. Hallelujah. Preach up! You're beside yourself. No, I believe the gospel. I believe the gospel. Jesus is the assurance of hereafter. And though I may go to the grave, this body may be planted in the city of the dead, I'm going to live forever and forever. In our Sunday school lesson today, it said about David's kingdom, 
that, that there's be no end to it forever and forever. That's like my life. No end to it forever and forever. That's Jesus. Then again, Jesus is the confidence in God's presence that I need. When I stand before God, I'm glad I have one there that knows me. Yes, John chapter 10 tells me that he calleth the sheep by name. He putteth the sheep before them and goeth before them, calleth them by name. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to be known as I am known. My Lord will call me by my name, take me by the hand, lead me up to the throne of Almighty God. And I'll see that majestic throne with Almighty God upon that throne. I won't fear one bit. God will say, son, what's your plea? Are you going to plead the fact that you was a preacher? I say, no, Lord. Are you going to plead the fact that you're a tither? I'd say, no, no, not that. Are you going to please, uh, plead the fact that you lived a clean life? No, never, not that. What's your plea, son? I'm going to look at that one at my side and say, Father, I plead your only begotten son. He's my Lord. He's my perpetuation. He's my Savior. He's my hope. He's my strength. He's my covert in the time of storm. He's my exceed in joy. He's my exceed in high tower. He's the lily of every valley. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the bright and morning star. He's my mediator. I plead him. All I've got is the Savior. God say, son, that's all you need. Come on in. Amen. That's Jesus. And I've got no time for this crowd that make insinuation against the Savior. That's who we believe he is. Then again, Jesus is my coming king to reign upon this earth. When I read that article in, in Newsweek this week, this thought occurred to me. Jesus must come back, brethren. Jesus must come back. I want to warn you all, and this is the main reason I'm, I'm reminding you of this article and bringing this message to you. We're going to see more and more of that kind of slander against our Savior. Don't you be surprised. Jesus Christ superstar was not a thing in the world and is not a thing in the world, but a slanderous attack against the decency of the Christ of God, the Lord Jesus. And when I heard about Jesus Christ superstar and learned out what, learned what it was, I couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe that I'd live to arrive at a day when men would be so bold and brazen as to produce Jesus Christ superstar. And then when you, when you, when you read such as I read in the Charlotte Observer and such as I read in the Newsweek magazine, against our Lord, we're going to see more and more of that. Don't you be surprised at anything that comes out in print or even in production in the way of songs or musical plays or dramas. Don't you be surprised at anything. And when that wicked crowd gets through with our Lord, what this man in Columbia University call him will be mild. This world of Satan, demon-possessed individual are going to attack our Lord more and more as we get closer to the end. You can look for it. You can expect it. And when you see it in the newspapers or see it on the TV or read about it in the magazines or hear about it in productions like Jesus Christ Superstar, don't you be surprised 
Now don't lend any comfort to it. Don't give any support to it. Stand up against it. Cry out against it. But don't be surprised at anything you read or hear slanderously against our Lord. The devil's at the end and he knows it. And before he winds up, before God winds him up, he's going to do everything he can to destroy grace and faith in this earth. So expect it. But I'd like to remind you that Jesus is coming back one of these days, if for no other reason, to shut the mouths of this crowd of liberals and modernists. Wonder what they're going to say when they see him coming upon a cloud. Here's the magician. <laughs> Here he comes again. He's going to hypnotize a lot of people. Here he comes. He's going to hypnotize. That's right. He's going to hypnotize that wicked crowd and make them stay on the earth. That's right. He'll bind them up and they're going to stay on the earth for the tribulation period. Here he comes. Here's the great musician. Here comes that immoral man. Here's that man that fooled people. Brother, when you see him coming back from glory in power and glory, you'll change your tune, sure as you'll live. That crowd is going to change their tune about the Lord when he comes back to sit on the throne of his father, David. And when he gets on the throne of David, we read about in our Sunday school lesson today, he's going to systematically banish from the earth all these peanut heads like this fellow that wrote that book. They're going to bite the dust as sure as you live. He's going to systematically get that crowd away. Yes, sir. Who is Jesus? Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now I want to give the answer to that. The Bible gives the answer in this chapter. But I paraphrase the answer. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Born of a virgin. Lived sinless. Died victoriously. And came out of the grave triumphantly. And went back to heaven 40 days later. And coming back someday to sit on David's throne. That's who Jesus is. He's my Lord, my Savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we're glad for faith that you've given to us. And though the world mocks us and laughs at us and scorns us for believing, and the world says it can't be, we yet believe that Jesus is all the Bible claims him to be the very son of God who died in my place and in my state. While our heads are bowed, I'd love to see my hand. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.